0: Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week, the Chernobyl Veterinarian. Stories from a radioactive wasteland. You do not want to miss this episode. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, a podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we're going to expose you to a radioactive topic that maybe you never even thought about. We have got the story of the Chernobyl vet. But before we get into all of that, I am your host, as always, Dr. Ernie Ward.
1: I'm Dr. Cindy Horton. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. This is a veterinarian who happens to share, a, as a colleague with me, um, time on the ASPCA Field Investigation Response Team. And through this, I uh, saw her initiative with Chernobyl and thought, this is someone I have got to talk to. So, Dr. Jennifer Betts, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Becky. It's my pleasure.
2: And And before we
0: get started, I mean... Are you okay? Like no hair loss, no strange <laughs> discolorations on your skin, things like that?
2: No, not at all. It's actually uh, very safe. I uh, wear two different dosimeters when I'm there uh, <laughs> <Of> <laughs> monitoring my, my my activity um, and I'm not really crawling around in the really higher higher radiation activity areas. So,
0: Well, for those of you, if you're not familiar, back in 1986, a nuclear power plant in Russia in Chernobyl went. Into a meltdown, all right? And it exposed lots of Europe and, of course, Russia to radiation. It caused a worldwide, you know, really it was huge news. I can remember this singing class in college and our professors kind of going, it's the end of the world as we know. it," <laughs> and, uh, and it was really scary. And that land is condemned for, what, 24,000 years,
2: Dr. Betts? Something like that? Yeah, pretty much.
0: <clears throat> wow. Now, explain to me exactly what is a veterinarian doing in Chernobyl?
2: Well, uh, basically, uh, when this occurred, uh, the people that lived in the area, the worker town, uh, right, associated with the power plant and and, and with a 30-kilometer exclusion zone, they were all asked to leave. And they uh, were not told, they were told they would be coming back in just three days, so they were told to leave everything. Um, And unfortunately, that did not happen. So. The animals were left there, their pets, their cats, their dogs. Uh, the government had went in and tried to to cull them all and exterminate them. But of course, a lot of them <clears throat> ran off into the woods and, and lived. So for the past 30 plus years, they've been replicating and surviving uh, basically as feral animals. Um, so what we have done is, is gone into this area to try to help control the population. We, we haven't pulled them out of that region um, because the government would not allow us for several years uh, but we thought we could uh, manage them and at least provide a little bit of a better life <clears throat> by spaying, neutering, vaccinating, um, and providing exams and parasite control, et cetera, well, for the animals that, that, that we can come in contact with.
0: Well, Dr. Betts, I mean, the first question I have to ask is, how the heck do you even hear about this?
2: Um, it actually was through contacts of people. I'm I'm pretty active in the um Uh, rescue uh, world uh, through national veterinary response team. Um, And uh, basically the founders had contacted a friend of mine the year before and asked him if he could, they could start a program and he did for the first year, got them set up uh, and then was no longer able to continue and called me and asked me if I would be interested in um, following up uh, after him. And, and I, you know, gladly took over the, the program as the veterinary director and, uh, last year was our first year and it was uh very successful.
0: Well, I mean, how does that phone call go guys? I mean, it's like, hi, Dr. Betts, we'd like for you to go to a radioactive wasteland <laughs> and spay and neuter some feral dogs and cats that may or may not have five heads and 15 legs.
2: It was at, at first, it, it was a little <laughs> bit concerning as I, I'm a, a cancer survivor. I was extremely concerned, but, uh, I did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people and, you know, found out that, uh, the areas that I'll be in and the exposure that I'm having is actually would be even less than what you would get on an airline flight over there. So, um, I wasn't all too concerned and I was, I was also able to be monitoring it through with dosimeters so I could find out what my cumulative radiation would be.
3: So can you go a little bit more into detail about that? So where are the areas that are most at risk? How do you guys minimize the risk? What level of risk are these animals likely get, getting exposed to? What what do and don't we know about all of that?
0: Yeah, because we're kind of scared. <laughs>
3: um, well, one of the biggest areas is what they call the
2: Red Forest, and that's where a lot of the fallout uh, fell in the very beginning. And they call it the Red Forest because all of the the trees and everything basically turned red and, and pretty much died out. Um, hey. So that area is a little bit further away from the actual nuclear power plant. Um, so you have a lot of wild animals that go in that area and some of the dogs do as well. Um, <clears throat> but that's not an area you, you can go in there, but you really don't want to spend a lot of time in there. Uh, it's not somewhere I would want to put a house. <laughs> 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 um, all of these animals, um, there's there's 3,000 workers that work in the nuclear power plant every single day. Um. And they uh, they come in contact with these animals. The animals come in from the woods because they provide food for them. They feed them their lunches, or they'll even bring uh, dog food for them, or whatever they can uh, Monday through Friday. <clears throat> uh, so on the weekends, these animals don't don't eat uh, or whatever they can sca- uh, scavenge. Um, but these animals that we have come in contact with, uh, we we ra- radiation detect them. They're they're uh, scanned, and if there is any evidence of radiation, a lot of it's just on their fur, on their feet, uh, so we can decontaminate them by washing them. Uh, they are put through a body counter as well to, to, to see if there's a, a high level within their body. And, and so far, we actually really haven't found a significant amount of them that we haven't been able to just wash and uh, get, rid of the, get rid of the external radiation contaminants.
0: Right, and Dr. Betts, I guess it's also important to to point out. I mean, there are, as you mentioned, like about three thousand workers in this Chernobyl area. Uh, recently, the Russians unveiled a plan to put a massive solar farm in this area. You know, so they are trying to, I guess, redevelop as much as possible and as safely as possible. So again, there's a lot of humans going in and out of this area, but it sounds to me like for many years the animals were sort of forgotten.
2: Yes, correct,
3: and I. My understanding was, at least in, in some different disaster areas, that can be a good thing that, that some areas like Chernobyl, as well as the demilitarized zone in Korea, have actually started to serve as wildlife reservoirs in some cases. Is, is that the case uh, there? It is and it
2: isn't. Um, there's a lot of different speculation. They, they believe that the wildlife is flourishing, um, mostly in part because of decreased hunting and, and human activity. Uh, but there has been a lot of research as well that a lot of the wildlife isn't uh, because of the, the effects of radiation. So lower on the food chain, the, the bugs, the insects, the birds, they're all showing significant signs of effects of low-dose radiation, which eventually affects the food chain further on up. Um, so it really depends on, on how you look at it. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that the wildlife there is extremely booming but it's a sort of um, <laughs> uh, a main a mainstay, basically. I
3: thought it was really interesting when you were talking about the fact that most of the radioactive contamination was external, but I also worry about, we you know with our everyday household pets that they just lick themselves like crazy. So do we know anything about whether that leads to internal contamination, at least in small doses, or whether that might lead to increased risk of GI cancers or anything? Is there any data that way?
2: we're still working on the data there unfortunately a lot of these animals uh we don't see them past 4 years of age uh due to the harsh conditions that they're in either they're passing away from uh uh the the weather uh diseases um whether they get attacked by other wildlife um <clears throat> unfortunately we don't see a lot of them you know at an older age so generally that was what would be when you would find these these cancers and such. Um, naturally they do lick their fur and clean themselves and they would, you know, ingest some of this. Um, there, where there is some research that's occurring right now. We actually just were back there last week, um, uh, drawing blood on a lot of the animals that we did in June so that we can <clears throat> do some DNA research to find out, uh, if there's any effects on, on their, uh, uh, evolution, basically on, on how, how it can affect their, uh, their body are
1: passing it on from generation to generation Ah,
0: very cool
1: this is so fascinating to me and I, I love that you're able to do some diagnostic follow-ups i think that you're getting some really incredible data and you know it sounds like overall radiation is is surprisingly not a huge issue what is the overall condition of the animals that you're working with in general are, i understand they don't live very long but are they pretty healthy what other conditions are you seeing and how much diagnostics do you get to do um, actually, it's very
2: surprising. They are actually very, very well, uh, look very good. Actually, some of them are fat. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> Pet obesity is a problem in Chernobyl. <laughs> I'm on We're heading over there tomorrow.
2: As uh, another veterinarian, a local uh, Ukrainian veterinarian, Pasha says, don't feed, don't feed, fat animal. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I was like, but he's hungry. I'm going to feed him. <laughs> Um, and this is because a lot of the, the workers have, they've pretty much claimed these animals as their own, you know, they see them every day and, and they bring their own lunch and they feed them and, and care for them. And, um, uh, a group of us come in and we're going to, you know, blow dart these animals and then carry them off and they don't really understand what we're doing. So education has been a, a big thing that we've been trying to do. And, and now that we've been there two years, they're all now starting to understand that we're not killing them and we're not doing crazy experiments on them um, and selling their body parts, which were some of the, oh, some of the, uh, the rumors that were going around. And they're, they're starting to understand that, you know, if it has an ear tag on there, it means it's healthy and it's been vaccinated. And one of the great things is, you know, unfortunately, these, these animals are hungry and they're feeding them. If they happen to get bit while they're grabbing a sandwich out of their hand, that animal doesn't have to be destroyed uh, because it has an ear tag and, it, and and it has been vaccinated for rabies, and right now, uh, human rabies is a problem there as they have not been able to get adequate um, rabies vaccinations due to their uh, issues with uh, the the war that's going on. So,
0: well, and that that's what I really wanted to ask you about. What about infectious diseases and parasites? Like, what are you seeing? Because I, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking scorched earth and everything's dead except for the cockroaches and apparently a few dogs and cats that are fat.
2: <laughs> no, it's actually, I mean, it's pretty much your your typical what you're going to find. I mean, they have fleas and ticks. Ticks are abundant. Um, you're going to have your hookworms and roundworms, parasites, you know, that you typically see. Um, they are some of the largest fleas I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> wow. But, uh, Do they have like on, four
0: eyes or yeah. something and like eight legs?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's actually very, very normal from what you normally see. Um, you know, unfortunately, parvo, distemper, it's, it's, all of that is, is fairly rampant. Um, you know, I haven't seen any rabies, but um, a lot of these puppies, you'll have a litter of puppies and uh, out of a f- litter of 15, you know, you might have one survive. Um, yeah.
3: I mean, I, I keep just thinking about how I talk to my clients about how bomb-proof, Roundworms are and they survive heat and freezing and pretty much every disinfectant except for bleach. Can I add uh nuclear radioactive waste to my list for roundworms? Yes, you bet. Yep. Oh my goodness. I tell you,
0: Dr. Betts, I mean, this this is fascinating. My mind is blown. I'm sure that our listeners are probably having the same reaction, like, what the heck? Chernobyl vet, this is insane. But you know, it, I really do want to bring it back to to the animal welfare issue because I mean, these are the types of areas where Quite frankly, I hadn't given it a thought. You know, it's like, to me, Chernobyl was something that I learned about in college. It was this horrible catastrophe. And then you just sort of assume that people put a big fence around it and that was that. But in a lot of these areas where we have contaminated, whether it's with chemicals or, in this case, radiation or whatnot, I mean, often the animals are really left on their own and that can lead to suffering.
2: Correct. So what, what are
0: you seeing as far as like the welfare issues? I and mean, we talked about, you know, not eating adequately and parasites and infectious diseases. But, you know, are, I mean, are, are these animals suffering?
2: In the wintertime, I would say yes. Um, they're very cold. They're outside. They're, you know, not in, taken in from the environment. Um, their human interaction is very limited to uh, you have food. I'm going to grab it and run away. Um, there are some that hang out in certain areas that are highly populated uh, you know the main entrance and and such uh, where where you can actually pet them and they'll come up to you and and, and get uh, in human interaction but the human inter- interaction or that bond there is is completely gone um you know it's uh with the exception of food you know they're eating whatever they can so you know their bodies have adjusted to that but but uh excuse me sorry uh, anyway that their bodies have adjusted to to that but They basically uh, have to survive. You know, If you can imagine, Ukraine winters are extremely harsh, and a lot of them, unfortunately, do freeze to death.
0: I mean, do they crave human interaction? I guess also this is a great case study. Like, okay, if you take this domestic animal that we co-evolved with and that we bred with certain attributes and we love each other, and then you take that away for decades uh, and you reintroduce human interaction, I mean, do they crave
2: it? It doesn't appear to me that they do. Uh, They're more out of curiosity, mostly because they've associated people with food.
0: I I think that's something that should be looked at, guys. I don't know about you, but it seems like this is a really interesting study because these dogs are, I'm guessing, the direct descendants of pet animals that were left behind, and so they've got the genetic attributes, but yet maybe behaviorally it's a lot more learned. This is fascinating. Correct.
3: Correct. And and Dr. Betts, I'm curious because I know, I mean, globally – A lot of us treat pets differently. And I'm always fascinated though, Dr. Ward, whenever you uh, share your adventures from around the world that we know absolutely that there are people who, you know, love their pets, their pets are as much a part of their family as anywhere else. But um, we also know that there are still a lot of folks where the dog lives outside, the dog is just a dog. Um, Do you have a feeling for how pets are kind of typically treated in the Ukraine or kind of what that percentage is there? It's it's more that you'd find in, in
2: other countries, uh, you know, it's that they don't typically view the pet <clears throat> as one that's going to come sleep in your bed, um, like we do here, <laughs> um, that, you know, they, they do have an affinity for them and they do like them and they do care for them and, and love them. Uh, it's just in a different way. You know, they will still most likely be outdoors. They might come in for a little bit of time, um, maybe when it's cold, but um, I haven't really had the opportunity to interact with the local people in their homes because I just deal with them when they're at work and in that environment. So I, I can't really specifically say how they are, but it, just from, from what I've experienced, it's a little bit uh, less as far as the human-animal bond and that they don't you know, bring them in their homes and sleep in their beds with them.
0: Right. and And I have very limited exposure to Russia. I've only been to Moscow where I was very impressed and the bond was very evident and similar to what we would associate in the U S or Western Europe, but obviously we're in a very different setting. What about the veterinary professionals there? Like how, I mean, are, are they adequately trained and do they have adequate resources and equipment to, to sort of help in this situation?
2: They, they really don't. Um, I mean, as far as their schooling, it's the the veterinarians that I've come in contact with, uh, you know, a lot of them have their training in large animal. And right, have whatever right. they've done in small animals is what they have learned on their own or you know through continuing education. Uh, the problem is is access to to certain drugs and, and, and products um, one of the things ketamine is illegal to have right. in the Ukraine. Um, so that makes it difficult. It made it difficult for me uh, doing my uh, anesthetic protocols and such um, especially when you're blow darting a lot of these animals you need something that's quick acting and, and, and ketamine can't can't usually be used um so access to certain products and and such and equipment is is a lot more difficult they were they were very impressed with uh, i brought an anesthetic machine and pulse oximeters and i tried to provide the best medical care possible in the situation that we were in um so they're very interested in learning about that um i've also uh, set up teaching programs with uh some of the local veterinarians uh so they can learn better surgical skills and help to um take care of some of the the local pets a little bit better. And so they're very
1: interested in that as well. They crave to learn. So that, that makes me wonder, you know, what you guys are doing there is so amazing. Um, And it's so incredible for these animals. Is there any other veterinary care or follow-up being provided outside of when your organization is over there? Are there veterinarians who are kind of following up with those dogs or watching for acute situations? We do have uh, one veterinarian
2: that uh, we've worked with exclusively. She lives in Kiev. And um, when we had some issues with a litter of puppies that we uh, kept, uh, they, they were sick. She was able to come down and, and through my guidance over the phone and with her interaction, we were able to, you know, provide some fluids and such for the puppies. Um, I've gone back just a couple months later uh, to re-examine some of these animals we captured about 30 of them uh, that was uh, twofold it was to change out their dosimeters for a separate research uh project that's occurring uh through the university of south carolina um but uh there's also communication with the with the people that are there every single day and they'll call me and say hey send me a picture of this dog Is paws injured? What can I do? And and a lot of it's just what I can do over the phone, or tell them what they can do, and it's you know pretty much home care, and they do do it, and it and it works fairly well.
1: I wanted to ask about the record keeping. Do you guys keep you you mentioned ear tags, and so in kind of tracking these guys from year to year? Can you just tell me a little bit about how you guys are able to do that? Yeah. So um, each animal is provided with a a number and an ear
2: tag, and on that ear tag uh, there is a. It's tiny little uh, dosimeter uh, that detects the radiation, uh, cumulative radiation for each animal. Um, these animals, unfortunately, sometimes you know the ear tags uh, get get ripped off or go missing. Um, but the majority of them are doing really well and still staying in place and don't bother the the animal at all. Um, so if there is an incident with an animal, let's say a dog bite, we can get that number and we were we can it's in our computer system as to what the number is and when they were vaccinated, um, and, uh, were able to, to track that as well. Um, we recently went back, I recently, we went back with, uh, Dr. Mousseau from the University of South Carolina, and, uh, we removed, uh, some of these, uh, dosimeters that were put on there and replaced them with new dosimeters so that they can, he can, uh, get that data to find out exactly where these animals have been going. If they're going into more highly contaminated areas, uh, and what their cumulative radiation is from June until last week um, when we were there.
0: Well, Jennifer, before we move off of this topic and get to some of the other things that you do that are also quite remarkable, uh, one last kind of question. What's the long-term planning here? Like, okay, so we're starting now. It's, it sounds pretty basic. A lot of spay and neuter, parasite treatment and prevention maybe. But like, what does the next five years look like? Or is there a plan? And if not, is there a way that we could help?
2: Well, our plan originally is to try to see if we can get at least ninety nine percent penetration of of all of the animals being spayed or neutered, and 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 actually in the last two years we're we're pretty close to that. Um, we're starting to get to the area where we're finding animals that just that we've cut you know we, that we have not been spayed or neutered. There's very few. Um, so this last year um, or this year in June coming up, uh, I, I would expect we're going to see a lot less animals. We do bring them all back in. They're all reexamined. They're all revaccinated and um, uh, uh, parasite control and et cetera. So our plan forward is more just a population control to try to provide them the best lives that they can uh, considering the conditions because we're not pulling any of the adult animals out. Um, We have been successful in allowing the government has allowed us to remove any animal less than a year of age and provide them with adoption. And we have just recently successfully adopted. Uh, So the first were 13. And then the second group was eight puppies. And they have all been uh, transferred to the United States. And they're all in homes at this point. Um, And hopefully, we'll be able to continue and follow up with them. So we'll have some information for five, six, 10 years down the road, if we do start seeing certain uh, cancers and such.
0: And I guess finally, before we get off of this, uh, who's paying for this?
2: This is all donated. This is all. Um, this is an organization called the Clean Futures Fund, and it's all um, through donations uh, and fundraising. And um, you know, it's extremely expensive to to bring bring <clears throat> people over in that area. Now, a lot of the vo- all of the volunteers are self funded, as far as their uh, their plane ticket. Um, they are provided two meals a day while we're working, and housing is provided, and that's all provided through our fundraising that we've. We've been able to uh, to bring money, but you know you can imagine fifty people uh, for a month time in the, in the Ukraine, food and housing and transportation, back and forth can can be quite costly.
0: Well, and that's a little disappointing to hear because I, I guess what you're really saying is the Russian government still hasn't accepted responsibility, at least not in a financial sense, to clean up this disaster. Not at all. Wow, that is amazing. Well, I could go on and on about this all day. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by this story. However, this is just one of the many things you do, and I'd love for you to talk a little about your work with Veterinary Ventures.
2: Uh, veterinary Ventures is a we're a small little nonprofit organization uh, where we uh, provide uh, veterinary care, uh, spay and neuter, and exams and uh, treatments uh, in other countries that are less fortunate that either do not have veterinary care or they cannot afford. Uh, veterinary care um it's but they don't
0: have to have like a radioactive wasteland
2: no not at all that's (laughs) that's something completely different that's my healthy so boring oh
0: gosh (laughs) i don't know how you do it jennifer you know yeah you just take care of all these homeless animals but uh. (laughs)
2: Uh, it's 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 extremely rewarding when you go to an area and and you know the the people come from all over and you know they they are they don't want to see their and they love their animal and they don't want to see them having puppy after puppy and they come to you and they've got five dogs because they couldn't bear to get rid of the puppies and they're very very grateful that you're able to take care of that or they've had this this wound on this dog for for weeks and they've been trying and trying to take care of it and 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 you can do that or the mange uh, issues the demodicosis, uh being able to provide you know brevecto and and other products that they can't get or can't afford and within three weeks you know they're sending me pictures uh over facebook and whatever of how how great their dog looks and how happy they are so it's it's a really rewarding thing that you can go in and and um help help these people um you know veterinary medicine has been very fortunate uh for me in my life and a lot of other people and uh, i like to try to to give back because you know they love their pets just as much as we do. It doesn't mean that um, just because they can't afford veterinary care or don't have access to it that they love them any less.
0: Yeah, and one thing too that's important to, to point out again is that many of these areas don't have veterinary care. So a lot of times when you're listening, you're going, you're thinking in America or even Europe, you're going, there's vets everywhere. Why do we need to send Americans over there? I'm guessing, Dr. Betts, you're going to areas where they've never seen a veterinarian.
2: Correct. Yes. Um, we've gone to Peru areas of, um, you know, remote areas of Mexico, um, uh, Fiji, Fiji there, when I was there, they do have a humane society there now that has a veterinarian that pops in, in and in and out when they can. Uh, that was, uh, they were extremely craving for, for veterinary care over there. Um, Belize we've gone to Belize three times, you know, not everybody can, can afford and not that they're extremely ex- expensive, it still is way beyond their means that they can, they can come up with.
0: Well, in addition to veterinary ventures, you do a couple of other things. Maybe just quickly you could tell our audience what else you do besides <laughs> um, not sleep, I'm guessing.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't do much of that either. Um, I was in private practice for 20 years and owned my own practice um, and recently uh, sold uh, my practice in, in this past November. I've been wanting for the last several years to switch gears out of private practice. Uh, I think I have my fill of that. Um, and I've become more interested in um, animal cruelty and investigation and, and veterinary forensics. Um, so I'm completing my master's degree in veterinary forensics for the New- University of, Su- of Florida. Uh, I'll be done in the end of spring. Um, in the past five years, I've worked uh, for the ASPCA on their field investigations and response team um, as a forensic veterinarian uh, working on uh, large scale dog fighting, cockfighting, hoarding, and puppy mill cases. Um, uh, I also teach animal cruelty investigation, the veterinary portion of it, uh, through the um, Law Enforcement Training Institute, uh, the National uh, Animal Cruelty Investigation School, and that's through the University of Missouri Extension. Um, that course is offered all over the United States. And this is mostly for uh, animal control officers, police officers, peace officers, veterinarians uh, that want to uh, learn more about and become certified to become a uh, animal cru- cruelty investigator.
3: I definitely hear a lot of interest anytime I see a, a animal forensics article shared of, of veterinary professionals sharing an interest in learning more about that. So would the best way for them to learn about that to be find the University of Missouri website or what, what would be the best place for them to learn more about that offering? For,
2: um, University of Florida, um, their, their master's degree program, they, they, have a, they have started that and that's a really well um, educational uh, portion that they can go through. As far as the uh, National Animal Cruelty Investigation School, that's more for people that want to become animal control officers or animal cruelty investigators. Um, it is a very detailed course, and it is something that I would recommend veterinarians to go through. It's a three part course uh, because they they would learn
3: a lot of information to be able to to help them uh, into that Ooh, field. Well, thank you for sharing that with us and And what about those are there opportunities for folks to become more involved with some of your other work or your other projects or to find out more about the research that's coming out of Chernobyl?
2: Yes, I mean, you can follow a lot of ours on the Clean Futures Fund uh, website. It's cleanfutures.org and also Dogs of Chernobyl. We um, can do a search for that. Uh, there are also separate research projects, one through the University of South Carolina. Uh, Dr. Mousseau has his research that he's he's doing and a, and a lot of his papers are uh, published and actually will probably be published uh, towards the end of the year Um as far as for Veterinary Ventures, it's uh, veterinaryventures.com, and uh, provide we, we will post uh, our, our upcoming uh, campaigns that we're working on. Uh, we have one coming up in January in Belize. Um, so these are all things that uh, you can, can search for on Google and, and provide more information if interested.
0: Wow. Well, this has been remarkably Interesting. I I am completely overwhelmed with everything you do. Uh, But more importantly, you know, Dr. Betts, this just reminds us all about how generous the veterinary profession really is. The fact that there are people like you who are willing to risk their lives by going into areas that are underserved just to take care of feral dogs and cats and animals really, really warms my heart on behalf of the entire profession. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Well, you have heard Dr. Jennifer Betts' amazing Chernobyl vet story. Now we want to hear from you.
3: What are your questions? I bet you're just as curious as we are. So go ahead and ask your questions um, to us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder. Also, um, I, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of ideas about radiation and stuff in pop culture. I have a patient who wore a Fallout 4 outfit um, if you have any crazy stories like that share that on Instagram with Veterinary Viewfinder and leave us a review on the Apple iTunes store and don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder
0: until next time I don't bye. have anything to say I can't top, top radioactivity <laughs> bye bye bye
1: Bye-bye. <laughs> i need to try to come up with something punny but that's a tough
0: one like i oh my gosh jennifer that's just freaking mind-blowing isn't it awesome, <laughs> awesome. I knew you guys
1: was I, I was like this we've got to talk about this because this is such a cool it's like you said dr Ernie, like most people are not thinking about what the animals in chernobyl's quality of life looks like and you know i, I just feel like there's people are always like how do i do these things but never know how to get involved and want to do stuff like this and don't don't know where to go so i I love that we were able to cover not just the chernobyl stuff but the the ventures and, and everything else